This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got an hour of science for you now. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good, and good to see you. We haven't had you on. It's, it's been a, a few weeks. It's a pleasure to be You've been back away. In the I think studio. you were away for the last. Yeah, month. I've, yeah. I've been out and about. Um, what a big night last night for mm-hmm. Victoria. I still haven't quite worked out what it means for science yet, but hopefully. <laughs> Usually not much. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I know. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll see. We'll see what. Uh, we'll see what it what it results in for uh, for our state. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. And Dr. Ray, welcome. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you again. This is two weeks out of three or three weeks. Yes. Out of four yeah, I know you're already yep. tired of seeing my face. No, no, we're good. Yep. And we've got Liv doing our Twitter feed, so you can follow us on Twitter. Liv will be putting things out. Now we're going to move the show around uh, from the normal schedule today, folks. Where we've got our guests. Bless you, Dr. Crystal. <laughs> we've got our guests in the studio already, and we're going to do some news. A little bit later in the show, but in the Triple R studio with us now is Professor Lynn Harrison. He's a senior principal research fellow at the National Health and Medical Research Council and a professor also at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. Lynn, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And we also have Sharon Hubner, who is a research fellow at the University of Melbourne's Indigenous Health Equity Unit in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Welcome, Sharon. Good morning. Now, uh, you, you're working together, like you're from very different fields. So what we're going to do first is talk about how you're working together. And then, Lynn, we might talk to you a little bit about your work on the microbiome at WeHi, because I think that's also independently quite interesting. Good. But, um, Sharon, why don't you talk us through first this project, um, this indigenous biome project that you've sort of ventured into, because this is, this is very sensitive, but very, very interesting stuff. Absolutely. So this project um, began last year. It's been funded by the Loucher Institute and comes out of the Indigenous Health Equity Unit Mm -hmm. um, in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. So that unit, um, of course, is directed by Professor Kerry Arabina. Yep. So um, tying in with her first 1,000 Days Australia work, um, yeah, they ventured into a Loucher grant to explore what it might mean for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to participate in a future microbiome project, but participate in a project with, um, I guess, you know, a greater depth and wealth of information so that Mm. when it comes to informed consent, when it comes to actually participating in a project that will require biological sampling, they can do that in a way where they... um, are informed and educated so using various communication tools like multimedia um, and in the first instance actually being interviewed um, to to express you know what it might mean for them you know to participate and you know what concerns they might have and culturally culturally how this can happen so sorry you use the word informed consent now i'm a chemical engineer but had the joy of working on a Human Ethics Advisory Group approving research. Now, most of the stuff from engineering, unless it's biomedical, is low risk. But the idea of consent is quite interesting. Most of our stuff, the stuff we would approve would be, how did you use a computer? Did you like using a computer? How did a computer make you feel? But the consent form there was pretty easy because the consent form was, in terms of reference frame, things people understood. They understood what a computer was. They understood kind of the context. So what does informed consent mean when you're asking pretty complicated medical questions 
to perhaps a community that's not familiar with it. Is that is that is that a challenge to phrase those things in a way people can follow them? It's an enormous challenge, and that's the purpose of this project: is to provide um, families um, with enough information so when it comes to answering those questions they can do that you know with confidence and um, so informed consent when it comes to a project um, such as a microbiome project is about um, you know participating um, by giving a biological sample whether that might mean um, a saliva sample um, a sample of mucus or um, even a stool sample so for a family to participate in that kind of project they need to be able to do that you know with an educated perspective and not only that they they also need to be able to consent um, to what that research project is aiming to do and also its future um, use and storage of the sample. So this project has been really about um, setting up the ethics, you know, for a future microbiome project. Mm. Sharon, how much, uh, I suppose, problematic history is there in this space that you have to overcome? Because presumably a lot of this sort of stuff has been done with this community over the years without any consent, whether it's, you know, knowing consent or, or, you know, partial consent or whatever, but just none whatsoever. Uh, th- there must be there must be some concern there, you know, or, or deep mistrust that you've, you've had to address pretty much front on. Absolutely, Shane. And, and I would say it's not actually about overcoming um, the history of... Um, collections which, were, which mm. were performed without consent. Yeah. It's actually about recognising and acknowledging um, with families, inter- with, within the interviews that I do with them, that um, this has taken place and that this needs to be considered um, when it comes time to making de- the decision, you know, from, from a personal or family mm. perspective as to, you know, how might I now participate in a project which will require me to provide samples which in the past my ancestors weren't actually asked permission for mm. this and and what's what's in it for these people i mean why why would they bother why why would they you know because this is quite a a difficult process to go through uh why what's what's the point for them i mean i can understand i'm going to get to lend you in a minute will tell us all about the science i'm sure but but what's the point for them what's in it for them well it's been an incredible process actually so over the past um four months i've been sitting at people's kitchen tables and actually conducting interviews and asking Mm. them those questions so one you know they're asked questions about what is micro biome and in those conversations they're allowed to be honest and say actually I don't know anything about this science and so then I'm given the opportunity to then delve into what is the greatest story why would you be interested and it's been incredible to hear and this is from different um, generations as well Mm -hmm. so from elderly people to then younger generations it's been interesting to hear how they they are interested in how science may fill in the gaps so gaps in knowledge which have been, um, you know, that have taken place um, mm-hmm. because of colonialism. So dislocation of families and disconnection from country. Some of these um, cultural gaps, you know, may be filled, you know, with what science now has to offer. Mm. And so there is a curiosity and there is, a, um, there is an investment that can take place if the families... Um, are given the opportunity to express, you know, one concerns, but also, you know, where where does this curiosity come from? You know, Mm. why do you want to um, participate in a microbiome sample? And, yeah, it's been quite... 
revealing in people's um, histories that they tell why they would participate. Mm, interesting. And I think for me, the thing that I really um, found fascinating about this approach is that it really points out that education needs to go in two directions. Um, you know, that not a, it's not about educating your participants in the study about the study. I actually think that given the amount of information and, and stories that you've heard, how is it that that knowledge and is actually going back the other way in terms of what um, uh, First Peoples want to find out about their health and, and how can we do more patient-centric, patient-directed research, how much of that is actually flowing back to the scientists about the questions that they should be answering rather than the things that they want to answer? And that, that is the absolute purpose of this project is in the future is to develop a family-led project. And that can only happen mm. by having on board project partners um, like LEN mm. and others, which are um, other projects of the National Centre for Indigenous Genomics in Canberra. So by having these partners on board, I can um, be, I guess, in a sense, a conduit. I can have conversations with um, scientists, but then also sit at a kitchen table with the families and look at ways at how we can develop an intersection, you know, mm. of research where, um, yeah, I guess these ideas can actually come together and mm. that the families will, you know, also be empowered to direct and lead some of the questions, of course, in context to what is actually achievable um, in terms of the science. Is there the hope, you, you talked about uh, the scenario where people have been moved off their lands and moved around and so forth. Is there a hope to use this project, or you know, the future microbiome projects, to make those reconnections? Because we know that the microbiome is dependent very much on the environment you're in. Is there, is there the, I mean, we might have to go to land for this, but is that one of the hopes that people will sort of be able to say yeah hey i'm i'm definitely from this region and you can see the impact that moving me from that region has had because my microbiome is not what it what it perhaps should have been is is that something that you think will come out i think it's something that um definitely the families um you know would like to explore but in terms of what um comes out of the research mm. um Professor Len Harrison is definitely more an expert because part of the project also is taking into consideration what is possible in context to the scientific research and not setting up family expectations mm -hmm. to yep. find and discover something that perhaps isn't possible. Mm. But of course, when you've had dislocation, you know, to family and to country, then in our conversations, what what does come up is this this sense of, you know, what if participating in such a project may have a potential to mm. to fill in some of those gaps, but what that looks like is still to be determined. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a short break for some music, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Lynn about all the, the genetics and the science of this, because it's fascinating. We're really interested to see where it goes. So hang in there, folks. We'll be back in just a moment. Three. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to 3 R In the studio, we have Professor Leon Harrison and Dr. Sharon Hubner. We're talking about this really interesting future microbiome study with Indigenous uh, First Peoples. And, um, Len, now I want to talk to you because the, the science here is really interesting. What What's the purpose of, 
having a look at the microbiome of some of our indigenous um, residents what, what what's the scenario there yeah I, I probably have to just back up and describe the microbiome first mm, sure. so yeah. um, as you probably know the microbiome is a collection of all the microorganisms that are on us and within us uh, that is acquired from birth onwards uh, and um, humans there are single species, they have 23,000 genes. The microbiome is like thousands of species um, with probably 10 million genes. Mm. So this is the sort of the genetic makeup that we acquire from our mother at birth and then from our environment. So, and it sits at the interface between ourselves and the world. So um, what's going on there is very important. And we know that if you don't have a normal microbiome, you don't develop your, your systems properly, your immune system, your endocrine system, your gut and so on, your brain even. And um, so we think that by studying the microbiome, we're going to get a, a picture of how, how we interrelate with our environment, um, how the environment impacts on our gene expression. Mm. Uh, and because that is um, transmitted from mothers to children at birth, we wonder whether well, there is a narrative of history there that we can that we can define scientifically in terms mm. of microbiome composition. And, and when, when you talk about the narrative of history, my understanding is that there's also an, a narrative of origin. So, for example, you can tell if a person, for example, is is has immigrated here from Europe or Asia based on their microbiome. And in fact, um, many allergies and so forth seem seem to be somehow higher in these populations be yeah. because of that. Is, yeah. that, is that right? Uh, this is a really burgeoning area and um, it's expanding enormously um, and uh, a lot of stuff is yet to be validated but it, it appears that there is probably a core microbiome that is transmitted intergenerationally mm -hmm. and then there is a microbiome around that which is reflection of our environment and, and it, it changes in different diseases. Um, we in particular study allergies and type 1 diabetes and mm -hmm. we know that, that we can define microbiomes on that basis but there is a core microbiome and I think the, the more we learn, the deeper we go into analysing these genes and their functions, the more we'll be able to answer that question that you are mm -hmm. asking. Yes, so, and the other point is that um, the microbiome is not only determined by our exposures at birth um, and beyond birth, but also by our genotype that we inherit from our parents, yeah. um, from our mother and the father. There is a contribution there as well. So that's why it's so powerful, potentially. Mm. And so with our Indigenous um, friends, we have... Um you know, quite a, a really unusual history there, I suppose, mm. where over a period of just, just several centuries there's been massive changes to their environmental locations and their diet and all sorts of things. I mean, what, what do you think we'll be able to see in terms of the microbiome? Will, will we be able to sort of plot some of that history as a result of this study? Oh, I hope so. Um, but it's a, it's a, a very big vision. And it's, mm. you know, it's like trying to get imagine what's possible now and I, I hope so um, so we know that we have to adjust the microbiome data for all sorts of things yep. um, you know including geography as you mentioned before um, but we really don't have enough data yet to to be able to know whether um, it's going to reflect um, history uh, and movement geographical movements uh, and um, changes off country that have occurred to people but mm. I think that um, there is a history there, there's a narrative there, and we need to scientifically drill down deeper into the genetics of it in order to know. But I'm 
it's very challenging, but I'm modestly optimistic. All right. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. The first thing we have to get right, though, is the is the measurement of microbiomes, um, and I'm not just talking about the gut, but we measure all sorts of things. Um, in a couple of studies that we do already in um, children in pregnancy birth cohort studies, where we study the mother then the child after birth, uh, we know that there are lots of um, quality control issues with the microbiome. So that's where we are at the moment. We're making sure that we can do things reproducibly and we can account for uh, things like um, age and sight and geography and diet and, and mm. you know exposure to antibiotics and so on and so on. Yeah, yeah. So um, Sharon and Len, uh, where, where are you looking to do this study? Out of Melbourne or who are the people that you're currently working with um, in terms of going out and talking to some of these um, Indigenous communities about their potential participation? Is it going to be Melbourne based or...? Um, at the moment it's um, primarily Queensland and Victorian based so um, I've been talking with families from um, Townsville as well as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families who are living in Moreton Bay and also Victorian families. So at the moment, um, yeah, they're the particular mm. areas that we've decided to work with. But of course, you know, in the long term and in the future, of course, you would aim for a national, mm. a national project. But as Len said, you know, to begin, you need to you know actually figure out what it is you know that you're moving toward and mm. um and so at the moment we're just working with um you know quite a small group of families uh, we uh, we've just completed a study uh in the arnhem land um east arnhem land on elko island looking at the microbiota of um the children up there under two years of age uh and um this clearly shows differences uh between those children at that site and children that we also study um, in Victoria and around Australia mm. for allergy and type 1 diabetes. That's fascinating. And we yeah. know that there's incredible disparity in, in the health status of these communities, even within Australia. So so how, how do you start to manage expectations around how much of these questions you can answer through microbiome research? Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's the that's the most difficult thing, really. Uh, the first thing is in relation to consent, which we talked about before, is to make sure that the communication, uh, you know, is as clear as it possibly can be, and that the questions are coming from the other side, uh, and that they're answered in the context of their own culture and their own language. And so the study in Elko, for example, is led by uh, the uh, people there, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, it's very much um, conducted by them and um, the microbiome and other studies that we do on the health of the children are really just servants to the questions that are important for them. Mm. Uh, mm. There's no way that as a scientist, um, you know, I'm going to be foisting, you know, this science onto any community, let alone an Indigenous community. I mean, the questions must be understood by them and and then we then... Uh, provide, hopefully provide um, some answers but in terms of we can tell them how it's relevant to their health today 
but whether we will be able to tell them how it's relevant to the history of their health and their mothers and their grandmothers um, is an open question still. Mm. Lynn, I, I'm just starting to get my head around the complexity of this to some degree, but mm. we're talking about a, a relatively small number of families that you've been interviewing, Sharon, and talking to. How many, given the complexity of the Indigenous community and the number of locations where mm. originally they were, you know, quite, quite... Um, I suppose you know, when we think about uh, you're talking about Victoria versus Queensland, if you if you look at all those specific locations that were quite um, easy to to identify now for Indigenous communities, and how each of those would presumably have different microbiomes associated with them, I mean, how many how many groups of people do you need for the sort of map you're talking about doing to, to actually work or be viable? Now that's a very insightful question because in the in the studies that we've done to up to date, um, you know, in order to get um, you know in order to draw conclusions, you you need large numbers mm. of individuals yeah. who are have so far been drawn from fairly homogeneous uh, communities. Um, now you know you I think that probably what we'll need to do is know the genotypes, the, the regular genotypes of the people involved in these studies too, in order to be able to um, integrate those with the microbiome data. But um, look, uh, at the moment, the numbers that we're talking about are probably too small to, um, to reach you know, major conclusions, but it's one of these studies where if you continue to do it year after year, mm. um, you get clues as to where to go next. And, I, I, you know, this is a problem in itself because it, it, we can't then reassure people about what we might find. On the other hand, unless we proceed like this, we won't find anything. Yeah. So I think that idea of, look, it's a big scientific question. We're not sure of the answer, but do you understand, you know, uh, how in you know how important the microbiome is for health do you understand how it might indicate the sort of um, history of your health through your family is if that's the basic concept and then we have to see what it leads to yeah uh, i can imagine there must be also a flora and fauna element to this whole this whole mapping exercise in the sense too you know knowing what food supplies are available when the distribution yeah. of that because you know lo and behold you know western civilization has pretty much decimated the majority of that around the country so yeah. there, there'd be presumably there's elements that we would learn or know about in that yeah. regard as well yeah. that would be would be really fascinating to yeah well to the community as, as Sharon knows better than I, uh, the communities differ in uh, the traditionally in their in their diets. Some mm. are high fibre diets, some are high fat yeah. diets, etc. Um, and that's reflected in the microbiome. Um, but but there are also unknowns that we see in the microbiome too that we've seen in the Elko Island study in these young children that are so so different than children living in you know the rest of Australia, um, non-indigenous children uh, that. You know, we're now searching for explanations for that are not explained um, just by the diet. Um, it may be explained by their, their, um, you know, ethnic genotypes, mm. and you know, they're the sorts of questions that come up. And at each stage, you have to basically go back to the community and have a conversation so that they 
uh, uh, sort of helping you to understand what you think might be yeah. important. How, how far advanced is the microbiome in terms of its use as a diagnostic tool? I mean, I know a lot of this, I mean, I heard the term, I think, brain microbiome a couple yeah. of weeks ago. You know, all this stuff is really on the, on the yeah. cusp of being, you know, yeah. bleeding edge stuff. But as a diagnostic tool, where are we with the use of the microbiome? I think we're a fair way off. Um, there are correlations. I mean, you know, there's the microbiome of autism, there's yep. the microbiome of cognitive impairment, there's the microbiome of more concrete things like, you know, type 2 diabetes and obesity and insulin resistance. Mm. But, but none of it is absolutely specific for those diseases, and there's a lot of overlap. Um, there's a lot of science to be done uh, in terms of validation and, um, you know, quality control of the work still. Mm. Um, there's no one one microorganism, say a bacterium in the gut microbiome, or combination of them, that we can say is responsible for that disease. Or if you replace them, even, you know, going back to Cox postulates of infection. I mean, if you apply those to this, replacing those bacteria, does it prevent the disease? That's not yet possible. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I even read a, a paper probably a year ago now linking the microbiome to jet lag. Mm. I mean, it just seems to be connected. Mm. You know, the jet, jet lag might not be so much time time differentials, but, mm. you know, massive onslaughts to your microbiome when you go to, to a country where your diet changes so significantly yeah. over a period of a week or two. Yeah. It's, it's, no, there's no doubt that it's very dynamic, mm. uh, but there's also no doubt that you need big data methodologies to look at all of the variables that you have to adjust for, mm. and, you know, that's a challenge. Yeah. So, Sharon, what's, uh, what's the next step? You're towards the end of this research project at the moment, so what's next? I think next is um, securing more funds. <laughs> right, always. <laughs> yeah, so the next, yeah. yeah, securing more funds, and also, I think... Um, just continuing the conversation with the project partners we have, such as um, Professor Len Harrison, um, Professor Simon Steele from the National Centre for Indigenous Genomics. Mm -hmm. I think um, even if this project has only achieved, you know, the beginning of those conversations um, and finding ways, you know, for... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families to have a voice mm. within what have normally been broader conversations yeah. about such research. If we achieve that, um, you know, I think that's that's an accomplishment. But of course, um, we now have generated interest um, within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families. So, yeah, I would like to be able to continue mm. and to yeah see, um, as Len said, you know, it's it has to keep advancing to yeah. be able to answer. Um, some of the questions that are being raised that can only be answered in time. And just before I let you go, just tell me about the person who originally proposed this project, because I think it's important to always understand where where Indigenous projects of this type originate. Um, so this project originated um, within the Indigenous Health Equity Unit, as I said earlier, from um, Professor Kerry Arabina. And in fa fact, um, Kerry had a conversation, you know, with Len. And, you know, I think together mm. in that conversation about microbiome, it, um, you know, it triggered interest within her. Mm. Um, and she's Indigenous herself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ke yeah Professor Kerry Arabina is a Torres Strait Islander woman. Right. Um, and um, as I said earlier, she has invested years now within the um, movement of the first 1,000 days, which is mm. about the first 1,000 days of an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child's life. Mm. Which is crucial to their, their health for their entire Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, uh, thank you both so much for, for coming in. There's a fascinating project, and maybe uh, you know once once you get going then on the um, the actual microbiome studies, we can we can learn more about what's coming out of that. That would be really good to hear. So, thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. Professor Lynn Harrison is a Senior Principal Research Fellow in the National Health and Medical Research Council and a Professor in Population Health and Immunity Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. And Sharon Hubner is a Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne's Indigenous Health Equity Unit in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back uh, with quite a bit of news for you that we've got uh, this week, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. Uh, we're back, folks. Uh, Einstein and Gogo. We've got about 25 minutes, or a bit less, actually, but we've got some good news for you. We're going to start with you, Dr. Ray. What do you got? Uh, well, Dr. Shane, we have... Oh, actually, before we do that, I yes. just wanted to reflect on... Because uh, Dr. Crystal had a conversation that um, it, during the break with our guest right before we left, and, we, and she was asking him what was going on elsewhere in the world, and it seems as though we're pretty much leading the show, right? Yeah, I think it's always really interesting to think about how scientific research with Indigenous communities is being done in other places. Um, and I think it's really interesting to look at how Australia, um, you know, how we, with our First Peoples, can learn from other research mm. that's being done, you know, in places like like Finland or Canada, in Canada Europe. or Alaska mm. with, um, with Indigenous and First Peoples across the globe. Um, mm. And I think that Australia has a real opportunity here to say, well, you know, we're, we're actually leading some microbiome work which could not only produce fantastic knowledge in filling the gaps in the stories of our First Peoples but could also then be relevant to other First um, Indigenous communities uh, throughout the world. And so I think I think that's actually also really important to consider the fact that while we are just talking about Australia, that this is really globally relevant work. Mm-hmm. And, and we seem to be leading it from what, you know... Yeah, yeah, and there's so much more that can be done. Yeah, indeed. Sorry, Dr. Ray. No, 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 that's important. That. No, it was a great conversation yeah. off air. So, <laughs> uh, I have a story about ionic wind, and that's not like a... Um, is that a euphemism? Oh, for like too much chili the night before? <laughs> no. Um, so ionic wind is, is researchers at MIT uh, have, for the first time, flown an airplane without propellers, without turbines, uh, using electro-aerodynamics to fly a, a heavier-than-weight plane on a sustained flight. Oh, and hold on. How big was this plane? So that's a great question. So <laughs> it was plane five meters in wingspan. Oh. It, um, although it was, it was quite light because it weighed, I think, 2.5 kilos. Uh, it traveled at five meters per second, and so it flew. they flew at 10 times uh, 55 meters in about 11 seconds. And it had no... No, no propellers. It, no was propellers. Pro- it was propelled by ion, an, an ionic wind. So it was is an ion drive in air. So, so tell us about that. I mean, we can we can talk about this for a while. But yeah. what's right. ion drive? So, ion so, drives are very interesting. Concept. Yeah. So yeah. in 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 satellites, ion drives have been a propulsion mechanism for quite some time. Where in space, you make ions, you shoot the ion in one direction, it provides thrust in the opposite direction, and it's a very weak in space. It's not a very strong thrust, but it's a constant acceleration. Mm. So if you run it for long enough, it speeds up and it's not going that fast. You know, look at it a year later and it's been speeding up all year. So it actually starts to move at a reasonable velocity. Mm. Now, ion drives in air work a little differently. So ion drives in air create, what they did was is they had uh, their wing was spread out with a bunch of little 
wires at the front of the wings, uh, <clears throat> and they were running a very high electric current through them with a very high voltage. Excuse me, high voltage, not high current. They had a, a, a very hard, large voltage, and it, uh, it created ions, and then just behind that, a little bit further behind it, they had a place for the ions to quench. So it's kind of a positive-negative thing that you have... They recombine. Well, recombine. I was thinking yep. negative ions going to a positive electrode. Anyway, when the ions move... What are they ions of? Oh, great question. They're ion, ionized air, so it's ionized nitrogen. Okay. All right. So, And yep. they actually make the ions in the same way. How many people have one of those air ionizer, air cleaner things? No, but no. I know what you mean. Yeah, so they work on coronal <laughs> discharge, which is they run a high voltage through... A wire, it, it creates a bunch of electrons. Those electrons bump into atoms and give them an ionic charge. And this is coronal so, discharge. So, yeah, so you end up with ionically charged nitrogen. Yes. Yeah, okay, and cool. so the ionically not charged nitrogen moves a little bit. But when it moves, it, it moves pretty quickly and it drags neutral air with it. Mm. So you create this motion because the ions are moving and they don't ionize that much of the air, but the rest of the air gets dragged along with it. So and that's, that, that's ionic wind. That's ionic wind. That, that creates... And so the ionic wind goes one way and the thrust goes the other. Yeah. And you've used that to fly a five meter plane. Yeah. No, it's a very light five meter plane. And it wasn't going very fast, but it's still but the concept but the concept is is quite challenging. It is. And 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 so in the sixties people said, Oh, we know what an ionic wind is, it'll never work. You're going to get 1% efficiency. You can never design a plane to do that. And as it turns out, they ran, at about, they ran at about 2.6% efficiency. But also it was how they designed the plane. They said, well, what's the right way to design a plane? And they actually used, instead of going, oh, well, planes look cool like this, kind of like a, a Lego approach. Oh, we put wings here, and it, it looks neat. They actually did what's called geometric programming on the design. So they, in a very kind of rigorous way, designed the plane based on ratio uh, trade-offs between how much power, the efficiency, the thrust it can make, the weight, the size of the wings. So it looks kind of like a traditional plane on the ends, but in the metal it has these long rolls that are like over a meter long of these thin wires charged to make the thrust. And so mm. we normally think of a plane engine as an engine, right? The propeller the, the actual place where the, the thrust happens is quite local to the wing, whereas these are distributed thrust systems. So the, the thrust is actually formed over this long, large area that goes over the whole plane. Hmm. And um, by the way, the reason why it was 55 meters is they did it indoors, and it was a 60-meter gymnasium. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. And, and, and in fact, the, the thing is, there's a great video where they've got the plane set up, and there's people playing basketball on the other end of the gym, and they have to have them to step aside so they can fly the plane. That's fascinating, um, isn't it? Now, yeah. they, they did prove it. So they did glides as well, because, you know, five-meter wingspan. Yeah. Figure. The glide, the farthest the glide went was 10 meters. Yeah. So it was self-propelled. Now, the analogy is the Kitty Hawk flew for 11 seconds. It flew 35 meters, although it did have a person on it, so it was a little heavier. <laughs> yeah, a little heavier. Um, yeah, but, but five meters per second is... Yeah, it's still... It's yeah. what I've just looked up on my trusty calculator. It's 18 kilometers an hour. Yeah, it's that's still no, like, you know, it's not like nothing to sneeze at. And, yeah. and, because it, and, and the thing is, planes are way more efficient when they go faster. Yeah. They couldn't go faster in the gym. It, it's proof of concept, and, and it, what's interesting is they, the way they said what they think you can use it for. Because hmm. they're like, oh, we're not sure we're going to get people up there just yet, but for small devices... Devices, it provides propulsion that's silent. Yeah. So they their first target is drones because mm. if we're going to have yeah. a lot of drones, we're going to have buzzing all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and so the idea is you could make these things silent. And since they charge off a battery, they go directly from a battery. You don't have a combustion engine. Mm. You know, and it is actually more efficient to generate electricity than run a combustion engine. Um, it's also 
far more amenable to solar power since yeah, it runs straight say, off yeah. a battery. Yeah. So these things basically are free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and and so they and it was a high it wasn't that high of a power it was a high voltage because it's like 20,000 volts yeah. at the wire for the coronal discharge but it's a low current uh. um and and so they have to optimize the materials for that a little bit better so it's a proof of concept where there's a lot of questions now but until somebody actually did it put it together yeah. and flew no one's going to spend time optimizing the materials or the modeling because then you'd be doing scientific research on something people might do in the future mm-hmm. so so this really w- might start to drive that conversation and you know there's not a huge different types of of propulsion i mean there's the classes of things we know. Every yeah. time we would discover something slightly different, we go, wow, like how a dandelion seed moves around. Yeah, yeah, we talked yeah, about that yeah. this year. But so it's not, yeah, but there's not that many other options to go faster or cheaper. Or, or, no. you know, yeah, yeah. We're kind of, we've scooped them all up. So, well, since we're talking about planes, I'm going to jump in. Sorry, Christopher. I always go last. It's bizarre. Um, but I, I read this this um, this discussion during the week, which I thought was fascinating. It was, it was actually um, in environmental research letters. And the main author was a guy named uh, Gernot Wagner from um, from Harvard, and it's it basically talks about the possibility that we've talked about and sort of dismissed quite heavily on the show whenever we've talked about it of geoengineering. So the idea of you know we've got this climate change happening, let's go and do some shit that's really scary to fix this problem because we realise we're not going to be able to cut our CO2 emissions like, in time. Is it like throwing sulphur up into the air? Exactly. Yeah. Sulphur in the atmosphere or little big tiny mirror, balloons little mirrors or something of, uh, hydrogen. in orbit or yeah. you know, all, these, all these various things. And, and one of the reasons why I'm always very negative about these is because they only fix the symptoms of the, or you know, treat the symptoms not the problem. And so the acidification of the ocean, for example, wouldn't be helped by, you know, it's reducing the amount of sunlight and and so that problem still goes up whilst you know we might lower the temperature we we still are pumping pollutants into the yeah into the air anyway so and the other thing of course is that you know you try and model these things and what the potential outcomes are it's a bit scary well, these because are, these they're are highly complex systems yeah they're nonlinear i mean yeah. normally we think when we increase something something goes up or it goes down yeah. it's just yeah. it goes in one direction yeah, yeah, not yeah, yeah. both yeah so this idea depends of, on yeah we'll just know. turn the sun down a little bit and all will be good uh well maybe not you know you, you change rainfall patterns you change all sorts of things anyway um this paper though is fascinating because what they've looked at is they've actually done a really detailed look at whether or not you could actually do this. Like, so what it would take to actually to do it. And the version they looked at was the idea of putting um, some sort of aerosols into into the atmosphere at about 20 kilometres altitude. So it's, it is the sulphate. So, the, you know, let's chuck some shit up there that's going to stop all that heat getting down to the surface and reduce this, you know, sun-forcing issue of, of climate change. Now, so what they looked at was whether or not um, this was viable, like could you actually do it, how much would it cost, and more importantly, could you do it without anyone knowing? So could a country go and do this to, you know, have this effect without the rest of the world being aware of this? Yeah. Just what happens when it rains and the stuff comes down? Well, don't worry about that. Okay. That's, that's part of the right, detail right, of right. these these things. Yeah, don't worry yeah. about that. All right. So, uh, but yes, we were talking uh, yeah, about that. Yeah, 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 we just no, could we do no, it? No, no, but this is around. Could you do it? Um, they, so they didn't. They didn't look at all the environmental effects of this. And because one of the things that people forget, actually, or, or just not aware of with these programs is it's not like you pump up a whole of this stuff into the air and by next week it's all good. You have to do this over decades, mm-hmm. and you have to keep doing it 
you, you don't just do it once and everything's fine. Mm. It's not like a massive volcanic eruption. You're all good afterwards. You have to keep doing this over decades. And the amount of material you have to distribute and over both hemispheres and through multiple, you know, sort of air systems is quite detailed. So anyway, what they looked at was whether or not this was doable. And what they found, and this, this was something that scared me a little bit, was that uh, you could do this, uh, you know, over sort of about a 15, uh, first 15 years, and it would only cost you about $2.5 billion. That's like a bargain. That's nothing. Like, that is cheap as. And when I read that, I was like, whoa, Australia Wait, would do that. that <laughs> yeah, like what, we, was, what was, like, yeah. what, there was mining company tax bills that yeah, just agreed yeah, 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 with the yeah. ATO or Not that a scale? You Not know? a problem at all. So in terms of the, um, the idea of, of doing that, it, it's pretty cheap, right? It's actually pretty cheap. Now, there are some complexities here, though, because you've, you've got some issues. When you want to be at 20 kilometers, right, you've got some problems because the air density is much lower. So this, this changes plane designs quite a bit. And so normally you're at about 10 kilometres when you're at 30,000 feet, which is what the 747 would fly at, but you need something quite different here. You need to be at a much, you know, double that. And keep in mind the atmosphere, you know, is getting thinner and thinner as you go up. So all of a sudden planes work differently. They need larger wings. So you'd need probably double the wingspan of a normal 747 to be able to do this. But then, of course, there are other things that you need to do as well. You can't just take all this material and shove it in a normal cabin of a 747, you know, and think that's all okay. You need to have a different sort of fuselage to, to hold that because it's a different sort of different sort of mass and there's a lot of it. It's not just a few people here. You're going to want to fill this plane up because you're going to want to be dumping this thing over a project, very large projected area for as long as possible. And, you know, getting up to 20Ks takes time. You know, so this is this is one of the things that um, they looked at was, and this was partly done with some of the members of the aerospace industry in this collaboration, was what would you have to do to actually design a new plane to do this? And they found that there's not really a problem there. They, um, you know, You'd be able to essentially um, redesign the engines uh, to do this job for about $350 million and, you know, the airframe itself, so the body of the plane, costs you about, about $2 billion to redesign. So, again, it's within the range of, of possibility to be able to actually, you know, rebuild these planes for this purpose to do it. Now, unfortunately... Um, You'd need uh, in the first year to do about eight of these planes to get it going. And then within the first 15 years, you'd have to have about 100 continuously flying. So we're not, this is, this is the, the scale. You know, people forget how big the Earth is. Like the scale of the problem here is quite large. You would have to have a lot of these things flying, which comes back to the other question of would one nation be able to do this undetected? Now, if a small nation like Australia, for example, started flying 100 planes in you know, not between cities, but just in you know, weird directions all of a sudden. Uh, and they were weird shapes, and they were travelling at twice the altitude of all their other planes and had larger wings. I think um, the world might uh, ask some questions. So I think it's probably unlikely that any nation could actually do this without being detected, which is a sobering thought, I think. I like that. That's, um, that's good. Anyway, that's, um, yeah, we're going to take a break some advertisements but if you're worried about people doing it without us knowing folks odds are they won't be able to do it it's going to cost them yeah a little bit of change uh, but it would be quite a protracted 
job to be putting these materials up into the atmosphere. So it was interesting to read this paper, though. That uh, Sounds like the plot for a, uh, a, a new kind of disaster oh, movie. Oh, you know, <laughs> Mission Impossible 27, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking starring Dwayne Johnson. He's done a lot of disaster yeah, movies yeah. lately. But yeah, 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 yeah. He'd be, you know, flying all 100 planes, yeah. no doubt. We'll take a short break and we'll be back with a little bit more news, folks. Here's some important station announcements. Three, triple Uh, you are listening to Triple R. We've got a little bit of news left for you, Dr. Crystal. Well, uh, this is a story that has made headlines across the world um, because scientists have finally worked out just how it's possible that wombats can do cubic poos. Yeah, see, I read that and I was amazed. I didn't Firstly, know about the did cubic poo. did you know that wombats can do cubic poo? <laughs> I, I, I was freaked out when I saw it. people in the world that didn't know about the cubic poo. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's one of those things where you think, is this a hoax? Like, yeah. you go out bushwalking, you're like... Hold on, why is there all these square cubes of poo stacked up on each other? And you're like, what? My immediate thought, to be honest, was, doesn't that hurt? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It turns out it's not like, um, you know, piping icing on the top of a cake. where, if, like, the, 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 like the rest of us. Well, yeah, wombats have round, wombats have round, um, uh, round bottoms, just like many other So the soft serve cone analogy is good for everyone else, but not it, it for the doesn't, it's, not it, That's the not the case for the wombat. It doesn't hmm. have a square anus. It's, um, it's, that, that is a technical uh, anatomical term. Yeah, square anus. Um, it, yeah. It, it, it doesn't. It's a good band name. Well, what, well, so why is it that wombats are able to do these cubic poos? And this is a question that fascinated a group of mechanical engineers in the US. As it would. So this is a research that's been led by Dr. Patricia Yang out of Georgia Tech, who... who freely acknowledges that I have never seen anything this weird in biology in my life. And so she just wanted to work out how is this possible. But, but I think this is the same group at Georgia Tech, which has already published papers called The Speed of Defecation of a Range of Animals. Yes. And, so she specializes in fluid dynamics in animals. Yes. So, so this is her area of expertise. And this research was actually presented at the American Physical Society Division of Fluid Dynamics meeting this you know in, in the last week. So this is actually a real kind of... Engineering serious conference about how is it that um, wombats do square poo? So you like how 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 if you're a scientist you're gonna like well how are we gonna work this out? So they actually got a whole bunch of um, wombats who had unfortunately been victims of um, roadkill um, and uh, had to be either euthanized or, or whatever, um, and shipped them over to the US to explore the fluid dynamics of their intestines mm. to say well how is it that they're actually able. Um, to do uh, uh, the, these particularly anatomically shaped poos, um, so they're they're, they're 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 about two centimeters cubed. So they actually okay. they look like kind of um, they yeah, look I, know, like, I know what you're going to say. They look like wheat bix, uh, <laughs> like bites, like weedy oh, bites. I thought you were going to say there's um, little beef cubes. Those no, they're, a little, cubes. they're a little bit bigger <laughs> than that. They kind of look like bigger than bouillon. There's, there's these new kind of wheat bix that you can get, like oh, yeah, wheat, wheat bix fruity bites. Yeah, sure. and they look a bit like that. And so the, the, this group at Georgia Tech compared wombat versus pig in intestines um, to look at uh, how how um, material travels through these basically long tubes and um, and they inserted balloons inside the intestines and looked at how uh, how the intestines stretched and looked for areas of rigidity and flexibility along the length of the intestine and and, and basically if you think about it the role of the intestine is really by the time you get to that end is actually just to extract water and mm. so as um 
as a, as a faecal material flows through the intestine and the water gets extracted, it, it, it changes from a liquid state to a solid state, sort of in the last quarter of the intestine. But what the researchers found was that in the final 8% of a wombat's intestine, so about the, the last sort of um, journey, um, it, there, there was these inter, interspersed regions of very flexible and very rigid parts of the intestine. So as the, as the, as the um, solidifying material travels through the intestine, it's subject to these sort of soft and, and hard forces as it moves through, which results in a square cubic poo. Yeah. Um, and so I thought this was fascinating because, um, you know, I mean, it answers the question of, well, how is it that wombats can do square poos and how do they... And they make these little, like, almost like little, like, piles, like, so they don't roll Stack off. Them up. Yeah, and so yeah. it's actually to mark their territory. But it's a very um, efficient way of doing so if you're making a square item that you can then stack and, and kind so of... Uh, jinga. Yeah, 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 line up. But the other thing is that it actually, it actually now creates a new way for people to manufacture cubes. Because up until now, you could only make a cube by, um, by moulding it or cutting it. But if you're actually to now create a new manufacturing procedure where you put things through a flexible tube and, and, and alter mm. the rigidity and flexibility as you go along... You may have a now a new, more efficient way of um, of, of designing the production of, of cubed materials. I'll never future. think of a, sh- a sugar cube the same way again. <laughs> I wonder if it's been would, made by an artificial uh, one bed uh, Yeah, I'm, an artificial, I'm, I'm, I'm not assuming that you would use the natural materials for these purposes. <laughs> but, are you, but I think um, I think it's also a fantastic little story about how um, Australia's unique flora and fauna continues to provide yeah. insights into our natural world. Yeah, and I love I love the way these things are explained. To it's like the um, the old um, is it a pentagon or a hexagon shape on the the pole of Saturn, oh, which yeah. when they first discovered, it's like what is that geometric <laughs> shape doing there? Um, but you know, when you look at the dynamics of, yeah. of flow and so forth, you can work out how this weird geometric shape actually sits there, which is which is fascinating. So yeah, well, uh, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It, folks. Uh, thanks so much for listening to an hour of science, Dr. Crystal. Great to see you. It's always a pleasure. And for the story on the Wombat Poo. That's, that's right. I just stuff. got a quick shout out. Yes. There is a talk that's happening on Monday, the 10th of December at Government House. So hosted mm-hmm. by Her Excellency Linda Jassot, Governor of Victoria, on current major challenges in global health and the innovative solutions that are coming from Victorian scientists. So if you're interested in global health, so diseases that affect um, our, our world, um, please Google and check that talk out on Monday, the 10th of December. Sounds good. Dr. Ray, good to see you. Fun, Dr. Shane. Nice to see you too. And Liv's been doing a Twitter feed and will no doubt tweet something about the event Crystal just mentioned. Yep, thumbs up. Good. Uh, Have a great Sunday, folks. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll talk to you again next week. And here's Eat It. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.